Good morning. It's such great energy in here this morning. Thank you so much, Ethan and sister. Sorry, I don't know your name. My bad. But uh, you guys just did an amazing job. And uh, I really was able to enter into worship this morning. It's such an honor and a privilege to be with you today. Um, I want to say something about how you guys have loved on me and my family um, over the last few weeks. I've gotten so many cards and gifts from many of you, and I want to tell you that I'm grateful, and my heart is full. I am overwhelmed this morning by the outpouring of your love on me. Um, I don't consider myself a pastor yet. I'm an intern. So to get that type of appreciation um, really meant a lot to me, and I just want to thank you so much for that. Well, if you have a Bible this morning... I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Um, As I was sitting in front of my computer last night at about 12.30 p.m., I was thinking to myself, uh, Lord, you you really like to slow cook me sometimes, and um, if, if I've been slow cooked, I got to tell you, the meat is falling off the bone this morning. <laughs> he kept me in there a long time, but praise God, uh, he gave me something to say to his people. So let's, let's look at that this morning. Um, so our narrative this morning picks up after the troubling events that take place at the end of John chapter 13. This portion of scripture is referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse which consists of the portions of Scripture contained within John chapter 13, verse 31, all the way through John chapter 16, verse 33. This discourse or discussion picks up after Judas leaves the Last Supper, heading out into the night to betray Jesus. So once the traitor leaves the room, Jesus proceeds to intimately address his 11 remaining disciples in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. In verse 31 through 33, the text says, When he had gone out, he being Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In these verses, Jesus is speaking of his impending death on the cross. But the disciples don't understand what Jesus really means here. All they know is that their master is telling them that he's leaving them and that they cannot come with him. As a result of hearing that Jesus was going to leave them, as well as the shock that they received when Jesus told them that someone among their group would betray him, the disciples were confused, worried, and troubled at heart. And in fact, this sermon is titled, Hope in Times of Trouble. We know from many other texts of scripture that Peter is the impulsive disciple. He is the one who's quick 
to jump to action. Usually at times when he should sit down and be quiet. But not being one to disappoint, we observe Peter being the first one in the group to express the concerns that were likely plaguing the minds of all the disciples at the close of chapter 13. Out of his confusion and worry about Jesus saying that he would be betrayed by one of them and that he would be leaving soon, Peter proceeds to ask Jesus two questions in verse 36 and 37. The text says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's questions here were genuine and came from a good place. The fact that Jesus responds by saying, but you will follow afterward, implies that Peter asked the question because he wanted to go with Jesus wherever he was going. Peter loved Jesus, and he wanted to go with him even if it meant laying down his own life, or so Peter thought that he was prepared to do that. But Jesus knew that Peter still didn't quite understand what was about to happen. That is, that Jesus would soon be crucified. Once again, Peter has put his foot in his mouth and spoken too soon. But I can't be too hard on Peter because I've seen a lot of Peter in my own life. How many times have you made a promise or said something impulsively without thinking about the consequences and then later realized that you weren't really prepared to handle what was going to come your way. We're all not much different than Peter in this sense. That's why the Bible tells us to count the cost. John chapter 2 verse 24 and 25 speaks to the fact that Jesus knows what's inside of every man. And of course, he does know what's inside of every man because he's God. Here in John chapter 13 verse 38, Jesus proceeds to tell Peter what Peter didn't even know about himself. Jesus tells Peter in so many words that he was not actually prepared to lay down his life for him. But in fact, he would deny Jesus instead. I'm sure this came as a shock to Peter and only added to his and the other disciples' worry and confusion. This brings us to our text this morning where we'll be focusing on. Hopefully, this introduction has helped you to understand a little bit of why Jesus is providing these words of comfort to his disciples who have troubled hearts right here in the start of chapter 14. Read with me verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it would not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to address your people this morning, Lord God. Father, we need you to move in this place this morning. We need you to speak to our hearts, Father. We need the comfort that comes from knowing you, from having relationship with you, from fellowshipping with you, Lord Jesus. Father, we need more than just information today. We need transformation, Lord God. And Father, if anybody in here is like me, I know that there is trouble in our hearts for many reasons today. And Lord, we are calling on you to bring us comfort through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been said, if you don't like the outlook, try the uplook. And that's exactly what our passage this morning is pointing us to, the uplook. I don't know about you, but my heart is often troubled. Even on yesterday... As I prepared the message, my own heart was filled with trouble. As I looked at the hours ticking away, as I tried to discern what it was that God would have me speak to you today, I could not help but have a sense of my lack of time to complete the task, as well as my inadequacy to say anything meaningful for God's people. Yes, I had taken the time throughout the week to read as much as I could about John chapter 14, but information is not the same or equal to inspiration. What I needed and what you need this morning is to be encouraged through something more than information. What you and I need is for God's word to resonate in our hearts in such a way that we would tangibly experience God's comfort. As an intern here at Highland Crest, I have had the opportunity also to share in the suffering and troubles of many of God's people. And I must say that there is much trouble amongst us. Everything from sickness to broken relationships to wayward children to troubled marriages. And the truth is these troubles are like a flood that never seems to stop. Just when you think you have an opportunity to catch your breath, it seems there's another wave ready to crash against you. Even as I was preparing this message, I received a text from one of my dear brothers in Milwaukee, Pastor Frank Woods, 
and he was requesting prayer for my brother, Pastor Richard Brown, who recently started a church a few weeks ago. Richard fell and hurt himself on Saturday. So my brother Frank was asked for prayer. He was asking for prayer because he had to step in last minute and run the service this Sunday morning on short notice. Again, there is no lack of trouble surrounding us. Honestly, this comes as no surprise to me because the Bible that we hold in high esteem has promised us that in this life we will have trouble. Yet knowing that trouble is inevitable does not remove the weight you feel as you go through it. In fact, it would be completely unloving to tell someone who is experiencing trouble or pain something like, you know, the Bible says that you will have trouble in this life, brother. To which you might respond, yeah, no, duh. Tell me something I don't know. What we need when we are visited with trouble is not just more information about the word. What we need is an encounter with Jesus who is the living word. And that is what Jesus lovingly communicated to his disciples here in John chapter 14 when he says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And this is also what Jesus is saying to us this morning. When the pain of your circumstances seeks to discourage you and steal your joy, Jesus is saying, take your eyes off of the problem and trust in me instead. In these 14 verses of chapter 14, Jesus gives the disciples and us three reasons why we should have hope in times of trouble. Reason number one, Jesus Jesus' promise of an eternal heavenly home in his father's house provides hope in times of trouble. Secondly, a relationship with Jesus is where hope in times of trouble is found. And thirdly, faith in Jesus gives us access to God's power through prayer in times of trouble. Point number one, Jesus' promise of an eternal heavenly home in his father's house provides hope in times of trouble. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, a more plain way to say it would simply be, stop being troubled or stop stressing out. Kind of like when you go to the doctor and you say, hey, doc, my arm hurts when I do this. And the doctor responds, well, don't do that. The way in which Jesus says this is what's called an imperative, which means this is a command. And Jesus does not command us to do things that he will not give us the ability to carry out. This points to the fact that we actually have the ability to carry it out. This also points to the fact that we have the ability to control our emotions. I know when the pressure comes, it seems like it's impossible to stop stressing about it. And I'm guilty of this too. But again, if Jesus commands us to do it, that means it can be done. The second half of this verse says, believe in God, believe also in me. Another way to say this would be, Trust in God, trust also in me. This is also an imperative or command. 
The second half of the verse tells us how to stop being troubled or stressing out. Basically, Jesus is telling us that to trust in him, which is what faith is, is the cure for a troubled heart. So when our circumstances are tempting us to stress out, our greatest weapon is to trust in what Jesus has promised us in his word. Verse 2 says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I hate to burst anyone's bubble this morning, but this verse was never meant to have us believe that when we get to heaven, it will be like lifestyles of the rich and famous. (laughs) Where each of us have multi-million dollar individual mansions. I know in some translations it says many mansions, but the image you have in your head is probably not accurate. But the image in the context of the father's house in this verse, the better picture or interpretation here is that of a room or a suite or apartment within the father's house. The imagery is actually taken from that of an oriental house in which the sons and daughters have apartments under the same roof as their parents. Scholars have calculated that the number of rooms that will be in New Jerusalem will be five quadrillion, six hundred seventy-seven trillion, six hundred thirty-five billion, one hundred million. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Each room is about 7,000 square feet. The height, if it were measured in Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other, would be about 5,440 Empire State Buildings. And the length and width of this place is equivalent to the distance between D.C. and Dallas. It's safe to say that there will be plenty of room for God's people in heaven. You do not need a mansion in the sense that you may be thinking of it before. Anyway, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Here we see a second reason to have faith or trust in Jesus during troubling times. The disciples were stressed out because Jesus had told them that he would be leaving them. But here Jesus is assuring them, as well as us, that the purpose of his departure was to prepare a place for us in heaven where we will live with him for eternity. Having a place reserved for us is one thing, but having confidence in getting there is a whole other thing. Not only did Jesus say he would prepare a place for them, but he also assures them that he would come back to get them and take them to where he is. Jesus here is also answering Peter's earlier question where Peter says, where are you going? In John chapter 13, verse 36. Verse 4 says, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is basically alluding to what he will reveal to the disciples in verse 6, following Thomas's question. That is that Jesus is himself the actual way in which one must go through to gain entrance into heaven. However, we will see in verse 5 that this statement was not adequate for Thomas, who still needed more clarification. 
Allow me to share with you an excerpt called Love Without End by an unknown author. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Country singer George Strait sings a song entitled Love Without End, Amen. It tells the story of a young boy coming home from school after having a fight and expecting punishment from his dad. Fully expecting the wrath of his father, the son waited, expecting the worst. However, the father said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. Daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. The young lad grew up and passed this secret on to his children. One day he dreamed that he died and went to heaven. He was concerned as he waited to go in because he realized there must be some mistake. For if they knew half the things he's done, they would never let him in. It was then that he heard his father's words again. Let me tell you a secret about a father's love. Daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. Isn't it comforting to know that we have a father like this? It is no secret concerning our father's love. God doesn't just love his children every now and then. Indeed, it is a love without end. Praise God. Praise God. I'm grateful that the Father's love for us is not dependent on how well we follow rules. The only reason for God to grant entrance into his house is because we have trusted or put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that no one can snatch us out of his hand, and I believe it. The hope of heaven is such a comforting promise in times of trouble. My heart is filled with joy when I think about how it will be to spend eternity with God in heaven with no more pain, with no more suffering. Mm, Praise God. Point number two, relationship with Jesus is where hope in times of trouble is found. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's actually not surprising that Thomas would say this. I think we've all heard Thomas be referred to before as doubting Thomas at some time or another. Thomas is portrayed in John's gospel as loyal and courageous, but also a person who doesn't accept things at face value. Thomas is the guy that would say, hey man, just give it to me straight. He was not the type of guy that took pleasure in reading between the lines. Though Jesus says that they know the way in verse 4, Thomas claims that they know neither the place Jesus is going nor the way he will take to get there. This is a reflection of the disciples' inability to see that the cross will be the way in which Jesus returns to the Father. If the disciples had understood this, they would have been even more troubled about Jesus's departure. Verse six says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I am the way. Jesus is saying that access to the father's presence in heaven can only be received through relationship with him. And there is no other way except through him. 
Jesus is the only one who can lead his followers to the place that he will prepare for them. Why? Because he is the truth. Jesus is God's representative and the only one qualified to reveal who God is. Jesus hears what God says and perfectly obeys what God tells him to do. Jesus exhaustively makes God known unlike anyone else because he has seen God. Those who follow Jesus, who come to know the Father through his way, are the ones who will receive eternal life. This verse speaks clearly of Jesus' role as mediator between God and man. I'm okay with people calling me narrow-minded because the faith that I believe in is narrow. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus really gives them more in this verse than they even asked for. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Another way this verse could be said is, if you have grasped an experiential understanding of who I am, you will know who my father is. Jesus is basically saying, I've already given you enough evidence, more evidence than you will ever need of who I am. If I were Jesus, right now I probably would have started singing a song that that I liked from back in the day. If you don't know me by now, you will never, ever, ever know me. Ooh. I, I just couldn't with him. Like, really, you've been with me for three years watching me do all kinds of miracles and you still don't know who I am. Wow. The following story is titled Needy Children. Some people have the idea that once the relationship is established between God and man, nothing more is needed. This is a mistake. When a child is born, it has the general nature and characteristics of its parents. But does it not continue to need their loving care? It could not live without it. So it is with us and God. He gives us his nature, his fullness. We become his children. But we need him constantly and uninterruptedly if we are to go on living spiritually. Our lives as Christians cannot be maintained at all unless it is he who maintains them. This is unlike our earthly parent-child relationship in one sense, however. In our relationship with God, we never outgrow our need to be dependent on him. And though in the New Testament, Christian maturity is enjoined on all believers, this process of spiritual growth never brings us to a point where we may become independent of God. We are given to understand that our relationship to him is always that of children. Woe unto anyone who ceases to be a child of God in his own estimation and thinks he has grown up sufficiently to be independent of God. Amen. There never comes a time in our Christian journey when we won't need God, where we won't need to be completely dependent on him. Aren't you grateful that Jesus didn't simply hand us a book 
and say, hey, you're on your own. He invites us into relationship with himself. We should be absolutely blown away that the God who created all things would condescend to fellowship with his creation. Since what we have with God is a relationship, this means that just as we cultivate and maintain our earthly relationships by spending time with those we love, how much more should we be cultivating our relationship with God? He is our father and we are his children. He wants us to communicate with him daily, moment by moment, every second, every hour of every day. We need him. This is about more than just knowing about him. This is about walking with him, hearing his voice, moving by the power of his spirit, reading his word, and running thereby. Point number three, faith in Jesus gives us access to God's power through prayer in times of trouble. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. If Thomas is what we would call a skeptic, then Philip would be considered a realist. Philip was not an abstract type of thinker. If Philip had a job today, he'd probably be something like a data analyst or something like that. Philip was like, okay, okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but show me the money. Philip, like many of us, wanted to experience God in a material or a physical way, not realizing that he already had what he was desiring in the person of Jesus the whole time. Philip's requests can be compared to Moses in Exodus 33:18 when he asked God, "Please show me your glory." Isn't it interesting that Philip had been in the presence of God all this time, but he still needed more convincing? I believe many of us aren't much different. God has given us his Holy Spirit, but we still find ourselves looking everywhere but up when we're experiencing times of trouble. Verse 9 says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Plainly stated, Jesus is saying, I am that I am. I am God. And feel free to use this text next time somebody unintelligently tells you that Jesus never referred to himself as God in the scriptures. You can hardly make it through the Gospel of John without claims of Jesus' deity and of him saying that he is God. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is funny to me because it's like saying, look, Philip, the proof is in the pudding. If you don't believe or grasp the things that I have told you, you should have least come to an understanding of who I am through the miracles 
that I've performed during these three years. Dude, who but God could raise the dead or give sight to a man who was blind from birth? Open your eyes, bro. Open your eyes, Philip. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus is here referring to the fact that after his death, he will send the Holy Spirit to live inside of the believer, which will give us the ability to participate in many of the miraculous works that he did himself. This verse is not exclusively or only talking about miracles, but also other deeds that Jesus did, such as humility, service, and love. We many times discount these as if they are not as important. But miracles are not the only thing that Jesus wants to do through us as believers. When Jesus says, and greater works than these will he do, he is not saying that the efforts of the disciples will exceed his own. For example, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I haven't seen, nor do I expect to see, anyone doing that today. In fact, if you raised me from the dead, I'm going to be mad at you. Because you're taking me away from a place that is perfect, where I get to be with my father. Don't bring me back. If you have that ability out here, leave me alone. I'm good. It says... What is actually meant by greater is that these works will be done by regular people like you and me who have the Holy Spirit living in us. This was one of the many reasons why it was important that Jesus would leave them. If Jesus didn't depart, the Holy Spirit would not have came. When we think about these greater works, we could also think about what happened at Pentecost right? Where 3,000 souls came to know the Lord. That's far more than the reach that Jesus had during his earthly ministry in the flesh. So that is indeed greater works. Verse 13 says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These verses are in no way telling us that Jesus is some sort of genie in which the believer can make any ridiculous request of him and it will be granted. What is being communicated here is that when we ask as believers Jesus for things that are aligned with God's will and his purposes in the world, It brings God great glory to continue the work that he started in his son through us. So we are a continuation of what Jesus' ministry was when he was here with us. The following is titled, Prayer Brings Revival. James Duncan, preaching with great unction and power, was asked, what was the secret of such powerful preaching? The secret, he said, was 13 hours of consecutive prayer. 
When asked the secret of his spiritual power, Charles Spurgeon said, knee work, knee work. Livesting of shots on two different occasions preached with such power that in each service, 500 were converted. Both sermons were preceded by a night of prayer. Charles Finney, after spending a day in the woods in prayer and fasting, preached that night to a phenomenally irreligious congregation. The sermon was accompanied by such divine power that the whole congregation, except one man, fell prostrate upon the floor and voiced their agony under conviction of sin in such loud outcries that the preacher was forced to stop. Of Uncle John Vassar, the Track Society culprature, his pastor said, he absolutely prayed day and night, prayed about everything, prayed for almost everything, prayed with almost everybody he met. He prayed when he went out and when he came in. He prayed before every religious service and then prayed all the way through it. I have accompanied, I have occupied the same room with him night after night and rarely went to sleep without hearing him in prayer or awoke without finding him in prayer. Wow. Wow. That puts my prayer life to shame. And I think I I pray a little bit. But this is what prayer looks like. It's funny to me. It's not even funny. It's, It's disappointing to me that many times we look past prayer in our times of trouble. Prayer is one of the most powerful weapons that God has given us. But yet, when we go through something, we tend to reach for things that are lesser in order to fix our problems. Jesus repeatedly through Scripture has told us and shown us that prayer changes things. We must stop looking at prayer as our last resort and recognize it for what it is. Through prayer, we gain access to God's power to overcome any circumstance. It is also one of the means by which we grow in our relationship with him. I tell you, there's no way that I would be able to stand here even today if I didn't spend time on my knees. Because life throws a whole lot of curveballs. And I'm disappointed many times. I'm troubled many times. I'm in pain many times. Even thinking about the troubles of others that I love and that I care about, sometimes that weighs on me so heavy that I don't know what to do with that. Because I care for others, because God has given me his Holy Spirit, and we are to bear one another's burdens. But ultimately, it is God who bears all of our burdens. We must pray. We have to pray. There is power there. And I want you to experience it. We must experience it. If we want revival, we had Life Action come here. And they set up and we prayed every night. We got a chance to hear new people. And that was one of the main focuses was prayer of that entire meeting. Prayer, prayer, prayer. That is where knee work, knee work, as Spurgeon said, is what we need more of. I wonder what would happen if we would stop talking so much and just get on our knees sometimes and ask God to do a work. 
In closing, I simply say to the believer, we've seen a few ways in which we can have comfort in our times of trouble from John chapter 14. If you are a believer, God has prepared a place for you in heaven. And it's a big old room, as I told you. And it's going to be a beautiful place. If you are a believer, you need to know that relationship with Jesus is where we find comfort in our times of trouble. And lastly, you heard that prayer is one of our most powerful weapons to overcome our times of trouble. And to the unbeliever that may be in the room with us this morning, I want to say to you that you don't have time to waste. If you are hearing my voice this morning and you do not know Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. And I know I sound like a broken record because as one of my favorite preachers says, I preach as a dying man preaching to dying men and women. Because that is the fact, is that we are dying daily. We have no idea when the clock will run out on our lives. So I'm calling today, I'm asking today that you would place your trust, your faith, that you would put the full weight on Jesus Christ and what he has done. There was a time in the Old Testament where animal sacrifices were sufficient to cover our sin, but it never was truly sufficient. It was what God allowed for that time. But sin is so gruesome and so brutal and such an offense to God that sin deserves a punishment. And because we serve a just God, he must mete out justice upon sin. We all have sin, the believer or the unbeliever. But the difference for us as believers is that our sin is covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and what he did upon that cross. I'm going to beg you, I want to plead with you this morning that you would read the Gospels, that you would see who Jesus really is, that you would cry out to him, whether that be here this morning, you can come to this altar and cry out to him. You can cry out to him in the secret place of your heart. You can go home and get in your closet and cry out to him. But I'm telling you, there is no greater joy than being his, than walking with him, living with him, having the promise that when I leave this life, I get to go home and be with my father who loves me that you get to go and be in a place where joy and fellowshipping is never ending, that you get to go to a place where God himself is the light, where God himself is the son of that place. You get to go to a place where your loved ones may have already gone. You get to spend eternity with the God who created all things. That's what I want and that's what I have. Because I've trusted in what Jesus Christ has did. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm good at following all the rules. Because truth be told, I fail daily. But my failures do not keep me and will not keep you from knowing Jesus. What will keep you from knowing him is a refusal to know him.
Because what he's offered is a free gift. He's offered a free gift of salvation to you. And he said, all you have to do to receive this gift is to believe. And to believe means to place your trust in. Place your trust this morning in the risen, resurrected Savior who hung on the cross, took on the weight of sin of the whole world, took the wrath that the Father would pour out on all sin and unrighteousness. And he died and he rose. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he says to us, believe. Believe that I am who I am. Believe that I said what I said. Trust in me and you too will get to live with me in eternity. At this time, we will have our worship team come. If there's anyone who does not know Jesus this morning, I urge you, I beg you, talk to Chad, talk to myself, talk to Al, talk to some of these brothers that have been walking with the Lord, true believers, and get to know him today.